Well, it's been an eventful week for sure. One of the most well-known and popular figures in our lifetime has passed the Queen of England. Um, her face is on money. Everybody seems to recognize her. Possibly one of the most photographed people that ever walked the planet has passed. And uh, what a life. Uh, one of the most popular men in the United States in the 1800s was an unlikely character. He was a mountain man of all things. His name was Kit Carson. At 17 years old, he joined a group of trappers heading west, and he survived. A lot of them didn't. And he grew into a legend. He, he grew to know every mountain range from New Mexico to Oregon, and every river from St. Louis to Los Angeles. People wanted to know him and talk with him before they went west. He knew the characteristics of many of the Indian tribes. Actually, he married an Indian woman early in life. Uh, somehow, he had this uncanny ability, people said, to sense danger and to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. He knew when to fight and when to retreat. And so somehow he escaped with his scalp when many others lost theirs. Friends said that they gave him the ultimate compliment. They said he could handle otter or water like an otter and cold like a polar bear. Now for any outdoorsman, any hunter, you that's a pretty good thing. Yeah, if I could do that, I could stay out there all day long, right? He had that ability to live through winters in the mountains. Uh, he passed through San Francisco and Kansas City and Boston. Authors begin to write stories about him. They can make money by selling books about him, even if some of the stories weren't true. His legend grew around campfire conversations at night. Eventually, he was invited to Washington, D.C. And though he was extremely out of place, he was the most popular man in town. Everybody wanted to have coffee with him. Eventually, he became an, uh, uh, an officer in the Union Army during the Civil War that took place way out west. I'm telling you, he was the man. Boys were named Carson. Towns and counties were named Carson. Monuments were erected in his honor. The National Park Service today even operates a museum in his name in New Mexico. But today... One of the most famous men that our country has ever had the privilege to raise and know has largely been forgotten. Who knows about this guy? Who cares about this guy? His bravery, his courage, his legend, his service to the country has pretty much gone by the way. In contrast, I place before you the incomparable life of Jesus Christ. He has been the most dominant figure in history for 21 centuries, and he will continue to be. Right now, it is estimated that about a third of the world's population would claim to be a follower of Christ in some form or other. Jesus is such a great figure that he can't be captured by just one author. So how grateful we are that God in his providence provided four 
authors to write down his story. His life is like a, a, a diamond. You, know, you look at each side and it's just amazing. You just want to know more about him. He never traveled more than 100 miles from home. He never owned property. He never married. He never held office. How do you explain the fact that he is more popular and known than Queen Elizabeth or Kit Carson or anybody else in history? Rather than respect and admiration for all the goodness that he accomplished, you know that he was betrayed and sentenced to a horrible death. All all in God's great plan. And of course, death was no match for him because he was more than a man. He was God with skin on. And after a hundred years, most of us are forgotten. But Jesus, even now, has a day of the week named after him, the Lord's Day. When people from every culture and language stop what they're doing to celebrate and remember his history-changing work. So today we are starting a new series of messages on the life of Christ, mostly from the book of Mark. There are 16 chapters in Mark. We're going to take one a week and not cover every detail in every chapter, of course, but a story that presents his life to you. In, in the book of Mark, we see Jesus fulfilling his own words. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's pretty cool how Mark writes it. Be like maybe how a middle school student writes a report for his class. You know, minimum, we need a page. Okay, I'm going to use big print. Might go double space on it. You know, I'm going to quickly get through this. I got to get a page of material. Mark doesn't write like that, but he, he's quick. He covers a lot of ground. Uh, he omits the Christmas story and he jumps right into the things that Jesus starts to do. Of the 16 chapters in his book, six of the chapters cover the final week of the life of Christ, meaning pay attention. There's a lot of emphasis there. Scholars believe that Mark was probably the first biography of Jesus that was written. That means that the other writers probably read some of his work and borrowed from him. About 90% of the book of Mark is found in the book of Matthew or Luke. <laughs> and it makes it then one of the most important books that was ever written. There's three things that I notice about Mark as I read through and have before, and probably you will too. First, Mark is compact. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. When a new Christian asks me, what, what should, when I want to start reading the Bible, what should I read? What should I read? Well, you know, I don't tell them Revelation. Don't start there. And probably it's not good to start in the Song of Solomon. Don't do that. That's probably not the place to start. I usually say, you know what? If it was me telling you, I'd just say, go to the book of Mark. It's... It's uh, good, quick stories about the life of Christ. If you want to know what he was like and want to see how he treated people, just right there. I mean, the other ones are great too. But John, John takes a long time to develop the picture of Christ because he, 
he focuses on different people like a man born blind or a woman caught in adultery. He spends a lot of time on just one. But Mark goes bing, 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 like a ping pong ball going back and forth on the table. He's compact. Um, but he gets to the point. Second thing is that Mark is a really good storyteller. Uh, he describes Jesus on the move, and man, he is on the move. Sometimes you find yourself saying, Mark, can you give us a little more detail? Another sentence or two would be helpful here. I'd like to know how that turned out. No, sorry, moving on, moving on. And the third characteristic is that Mark is very orderly. His, I think his favorite word is the word immediately. It's in, it's in the book 41 times, like 41 times, like he immediately from there, immediately from there, back, back, back and forth he goes. He explains the matchless life of Christ. He tells the reaction to what Jesus did, and then he's on to the next story. And you might be saying, wait, just, just a minute. Nope, sorry, got ground the cover here. Mark is really good about pointing out the reactions that people have when they encounter Jesus. Some of you have heard me say this before, but if you're new among us, as you read the Gospels, you find these six common reactions to Jesus. Here they are, just uh, people were afraid, people were amazed, they were awed, they were astounded, they were astonished, and some of them were angry. I didn't come up with the A words. I didn't do that. I just read them in Scripture and just share them with you. But those six reactions are in the Gospels commonly. Meaning Jesus caused a reaction wherever he went. Things changed when he showed up. It wasn't just another day in life. Ah, yeah, routine, boring. No, no, not that at all. There was always a reaction. And he gets the same reactions today from some people. There's awe and astonishment. And from some people, there's fear and anger. But I would just encourage you as you read through the Gospels to look for those reactions and circle them. Yeah, same with me. I have those reactions. Mark himself had some of these reactions in his own connection with Jesus. He had some ups and downs. Things didn't always go smoothly for him. He disappointed some people. But the grace of God pulled him along. And what happens to Mark can happen to all of us through the power of Christ at work in our life. So today, I'm just going to jump in like Mark would do. I'm going to omit the first 20 verses of the first chapter and jump in at verse 21 up at to this point, uh, Mark has told us about something about John the Baptist. He's told us how Jesus was baptized. He tells us about some of Jesus' early followers. Now let's jump in at verse 21, if you will. <clears throat> they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, 
the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. What a day to be in church, huh? <laughs> man, oh man. This is the first public teaching that Mark records for us and his first miracle. Uh, and this begins what you could call one day in the life of Jesus. If you're reading with me, if you have your Bible open to your phone or physical Bible, um, there's several stories that are connected together. It's very interesting because these stories all take place on one day in the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum is a lakeside town. Like uh, if you've ever been to Watkins Glen, New York, something like that, or Canandaigua or Olcott on Lake Ontario. It's a, it's a town like that. And it was the home of Peter and Andrew. And later, Jesus stayed there for a while too. This word authority is pretty amazing because people recognize Jesus is very different from everybody else that they have met. He teaches with authority. He has authority over demons. It must have been an amazing day in the, in the life of that synagogue. You, you wonder if this man in the synagogue was a regular. Did he come every Saturday? Had he been like this for a long time? Was he visiting that day? People, did people know him? Mark doesn't tell us that. But he does tell us what this voice says in him. He recognizes Jesus as the God-man. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth, so he knows him as a man. He knows where he's from. But he recognizes his true identity, the, the Holy One of God. Man, this is the gem that Mark and all the gospel writers want you to know. Right off the bat, Jesus is a man, yeah, from Nazareth, for sure. But he is God in the flesh. And that's why he has this authority when he speaks, things happen. And comic book writers and modern movie makers have capitalized on this uh, point, trying to duplicate this concept of having uh, two people with different identities in the same body. Okay, So like you got Clark Kent, Superman. You got Peter Parker and Spider-Man. You got Tony Stark and Iron Man. You got Bruce Wayne and Batman. There's, they, they got it. They present that to you and you accept it like, oh yeah, he's this guy, but he's this guy. Yeah, he's like that. I, I get it. I didn't say anything about the Lone Ranger because... I'm not telling you who the Lone Ranger is. It's a secret. But what I'm telling you is that Hollywood got their storyline and the comic book writers got their storyline from the Bible. I think they stole it from the Bible. From the life of Christ. Two in one. He is this guy, but he's also God in the flesh. 
And so we have the great advantage of God's living word and we, we know the true identity of Jesus. We're, we're beyond the people in Capernaum that day. They didn't know, but he was Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, he was the son of Mary and Joseph. Yes, he was the carpenter's son. But scripture pulls back the curtain and tells us who he really was that day in the synagogue. I just read a little bit for, to you from the book of Revelation, chapter 1. John says, I turned and saw the seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You guys, that's who was walking into the synagogue for worship on that morning. And only one person recognized him as that. Jesus was disguised as a man, but he was the mighty God of revelation. Look out below. And so the demon asked this question that heretofore we would have no answer for. What do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? Well, up to this point, the demons ruled. Now there's a new sheriff in town, buddy. Ain't going to be like this anymore. And then he gives this confession. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Can you imagine being in the room that morning and hearing... Maybe this person that you know from town who's been in the synagogue for years stand up with this strange, weird voice and make this statement? Wow. Good thing he was in church that morning, right? Suddenly the normal synagogue service got very interesting. Jesus was never boring. I... I I hate it when people say church is boring or you're boring or the Bible's boring. I hate it because it tells, I'm sorry, that shows my weakness because Jesus is never boring. Dude, anywhere he went, he got these reactions. Look out, he's coming and something's going to happen today. Well, the people reacted with amazement, as you know. First, with what he said, then second, with what he did. It reminds me, of the song we sing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. That's the New Testament reaction. People were amazed at him. I hope, I hope that you will never lose the wonder of who it is who's come to ransom you. The Holy One of God has come for you to be a ransom for you. If we read through Mark, we know this is the first of four times where he dealt with a demon-possessed person. The evil spirit knows something about Jesus, and he also knows 
he's in big trouble, mister. He's in big trouble. Up to this point, there was no remedy. And so they were stunned. When Jesus solved their problem, count them, with, with six words. Six words, it's done. Clearly, he had authority and power unlike anything they had ever seen. And the news spreads like wildfire. And so we want to know more, right? You, you have questions about this. This happened in, in a synagogue on a Saturday morning in a small town. It, it happened, and tell me more. And you want to know more, and Mark says, sorry, that's all you get. We're moving on. Like, really? Wait, just give me some more. But here's what happened next. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with Jesus and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her by the hand, helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. This is the second miracle recorded by Mark, and you get some information about Peter. You know he's married. You know where he lives. You know he's got a brother and all that. But that's, that's small potatoes. Jesus had the power to heal immediately and completely. There's no appointment necessary with Jesus, no insurance card needed, no forms to fill out. There's no, time, no needed time for recovery. There's no medication. There's no therapy. There's no charge. Any questions? Let's move on. That's how he does things. It's just amazing to me. She got up and began to serve them. Now, a bunch of us have been sick or injured. And uh, some of us are still walking around with limps and, uh, you know, aches and pains. Yeah, we're better. Yeah, we got treatment. But uh, we didn't really immediately get back on our feet and get back to work and start life again. So that's the difference in this miracle. She was sicker than a dog, and now she's serving. And no doubt, everybody in the room is wondering, weren't you, weren't you on your deathbed just like three minutes ago? Now you're, you're serving soup to me? What are you doing? And Peter and his family never forgot that moment and they made sure to tell Mark this story because they were influencers on Mark as he wrote the biography of Jesus. Don't forget this time. Remember that time on that one day with Jesus back in Capernaum. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness, that's right. She was really sick, and then all of a sudden. And so you're thinking, okay, we could use some more detail on that. I'd like to know more about that. But wait, there's more in this day with Jesus. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Party at Peter's house. The news spread. And can you imagine your house your house today with the crowd of people trying to get in and people out on the driveway and the yard and people down the street and cars parked down there. They, they want to be at your place. This is where the party is. The news spread. And 
there's more exorcisms and there's more healings and there's nothing too hard for Jesus. He wasn't like a genie who said, I'll give you three wishes. No, no, no. His patience was unending and his power was inexhaustible. And so now you're saying, okay, this is quite a day. But it was a short night for him too because we get another delicious insight from Mark before I close today. While everybody else was sleeping, Mark tells us that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everybody's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's, that's why I've come. So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You guys, uh, I know that you're starting new routines now, a uh, new schedule. You got places to be early in the morning, uh, places to be after work, chasing kids, practices, games, competitions. You got a lot of stuff going on. You've got a busy day, just like Jesus had a busy day from morning till night. He was in the synagogue, then at Peter's house, then people came to his house and stayed till the last, you know, till the last cows came, till the cows came home. They, there's a lot going on in his life, but look how he managed his schedule. I want to encourage you to think about this as you manage your schedule, as you start these new routines. Very early the next morning, he got up and went to a quiet place where he could pray. You see the priority of prayer and you see a place of prayer and you see the privacy of prayer. Hey, there's a three-point sermon right there. I'll skip that. Uh, but like you, Jesus was very busy. He is in great demand. He's got places to be. But he teaches us, doesn't he, to go away, to slow down, to pour your heart out to the Lord. And you have to wonder, what is God in the flesh pray about to God in heaven, God the Father. What are they talking about? I don't know. We don't have the content of Jesus' prayer. But knowing something about Jesus, I would guess he's praying to be faithful to his calling and to be filled with love for these people that are difficult and to have patience to deal with all these demands, all these people coming to the door, and wisdom for the right words to say at the right time, and the power to deal with demons in the demon world and diseases, and to finish the mission so I can go back home. And of course, there was that matter about the cross, right? that ransom part that had to be paid. The mission, Jesus said, let's go to nearby villages so I can preach. That's why I've come. And what was the thing that he preached? Well, chapter one of Mark tells us what he preached in verse 14 and 15. This is what he said. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's what he was preaching. 
And that's why he went from town to town. Repent. The time has come. Believe. I have some takeaways for you. Just try to give you some thought questions as we, as we close. But I can invite the worship team up now as we do that. The first thing I'd like to point out is that we should recognize the identity of Jesus, that he is the God-man. Okay, he's not boring. He is not sleepy. He doesn't get tired. He's the God-man. My hope is that I will never lose the wonder of who he is. And sometimes I think we do lose the wonder because things become routine. You got to work at it, you guys, but I pray that you'll never lose the wonder of his authority and his power and his compassion and the things we'll see about. Don't let that become routine to you. May we never lose the wonder. And third, I would just say it would be really a good discipline for you just for a week to try to copy the prayer life of Jesus alone, a location, privacy, a dedicated time. Simple ideas. You can do that. And you're busy like he was, so work that in. And then finally, repent and believe the good news. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. I find this contrast in, in the, the book of Mark. As you read it, maybe you do too. Uh, the cross is ahead. Four times Jesus predicted his own suffering. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there. Yet at the same time, we know that death is ahead of him and he's going to be sacrificed. At the same time, we have the Mount of Transfiguration where he's glorious. We have himself calling himself the Son of Man, the most exalted of titles that you could take. He accepted this confession from Peter. You're the Christ, the Son of God. So over here is the cross. He's going to die, but he's the exalted one. And this is the great contradiction that Mark presents us and the other writers. It's unheard of. Is there any God like this who would do this? The exalted Christ, the Holy One of God, would become a ransom for you and me. There's a song that we sing, sometimes you hear it at Christmas, Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down before him, worship your king. And we couldn't save ourselves. The cross would be the means for our escape. And he did it. And I just invite you to think about the majesty of Christ and the humanity of Christ. It's a marvelous thing. If you don't know him, we would be privileged to do our best to point you towards him.